Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Amy Now to this podcast. Dr. Now is Director of Optometric and Low Vision Services at the UPMCI Center in the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Pittsburgh. She is also an Assistant Professor in the Department of Ophthalmology. Dr. Now, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. So I know that you have both clinical responsibilities as well as research responsibilities, and I think the focus of today's discussion will probably be on the research, but perhaps this is the beginning. Tell us a little bit about what you do from a clinical perspective. The clinical work I do actually motivates me to do the research work because the patients that I see mostly have pretty profound vision problems. I fit what are called scleral lenses, which are these very large lenses to help rehabilitate the ocular surface, and also specialty lenses that are used for diseases like keratoconus or after corneal transplants. So many of our patients have pretty bad vision, and it's rewarding to be able to help them see a little bit better. And I do that about half the time, and any other time I work on the research side. 50-50 for 150%, right? 175%, I think, right. <laughs> the last count. So I, I seem to recall that some of your clinical interests also relate to people with chemical burns and so forth. Is that correct? Right. So we have a couple patients that are being seen a few times a month now that have had occupational exposures to chemicals, chemical splashes, chemical burns, and their corneas are severely compromised, their eyes are severely dry. There's one gentleman who also has some lid deformity as a result of this. So it's unfortunate, but not that uncommon to see these kind of cases. So let's focus on the research. And I know you have a number of research interests and activities, but the one that I'm personally familiar with is what's called the brain port. So perhaps we can start there. Tell us what the brain port is and what you're trying to do with that particular technology. The brain port is an example of sensory substitution technology. And sensory substitution is a way that you can exploit the information going into the brain to give people a better sense of their environment. So, for example, if you don't have vision anymore and it can't be fixed or restored, can you augment your remaining senses to be able to perceive what's going on around you? And the brain port uses what's called haptic exploitation, meaning that you use touch and they couple a video camera to a little lollipop that goes in your mouth that has some electrodes on it. The camera captures the scene, it gets downsampled onto the tongue, and you can feel it on your tongue. There are other sensory substitution devices that use sound. One is called the voice, and they have a camera, and instead of sampling that into something that you feel, it's something that you hear. So there are several of these devices that are sort of being developed now. So some time ago I saw a demonstration of the brain port where an individual who didn't have visual acuity with the lollipop transducer was able to read big numbers or letters on a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Is that still the, the resolution of this technology? Yes, so the number of electrodes on the array has not increased since we've been using the device. It's still 400 electrodes, which is still a pretty decent number, but 
What we really found is that our ability to train people to use the device has really catapulted the functionality. So we focus on core skill acquisition during the short time that we have with them, and that's to allow them to take those core skills and then build upon them so that they can do increasingly complex tasks. So the resolution of any of these ultra-low vision devices, whether it's a sensory substitution modality or it's a retinal implant chip, is really actually quite poor. But what's important to remember is that you don't need to have really good resolution acuity to have improved function. You can just get a little bit of information is a whole lot better than no information. So I know this is a subject of ongoing research, but can you give us any insight into why this works? I mean, when you put electrical stimulus on the tongue, that somehow or other the brain translates this to some visual acuity. That's a really great question, and it's one that a lot of people ask. And it's not that your tongue sees, but or that your ears can see. It's that the brain is smart, and the visual cortex is hardwired to lots of different parts of the brain because we don't just see, but we see and we hear, or we see and we smell. And so our input is multimodal. And so there are pre-existing connections that we exploit. We do neuroimaging studies, and we, we are finding that the visual association areas are highly recruited, meaning not the necessarily primary visual cortex, although there is some activation in blind people who use the brain port device in the primary visual cortex. But these association areas are also heavily recruited. And it's probably coming through somatosensory cortex. So it's you know, the somatosensory cortex is the primary conduit, at least for the tongue. And then it's exploiting these already existing connections to provide information about space and location to the part of the brain that knows how to process that information. So is the tongue unique because of the saliva and the electrical conductivity, or is it unique for other reasons in terms of this outcome? It is unique because of the saliva. It's a great coupling fluid, so you don't need to use as much energy, and you're not going to burn the skin. But the other issue is that the two-point discrimination ability of the tongue exceeds that of the fingertips, so it's actually quite sensitive. And if you think about it, if you put a Starburst candy in your mouth, you can tell that it's a square or if you put a malt ball in your mouth, you can tell that it's round. So the tongue already knows how to discriminate shapes. It has some of that tactile ability. So, Dr. Now, I know this is ongoing research, but have you published any papers in terms of your work in this area? The newest one we have is in press right now. It's in the TVST journal, which is the new ARVO publication. And it's talking about how you can measure outcomes for sensory substitution devices. So, Before we started working with this device, all of the reports about increased functionality were anecdotal, and there was no attempt to quantitatively measure that it was actually doing anything. And we spent about a year trying to figure out how to make this happen, and then finally enrolled 30 blind subjects who participated, and we are able to show that there is a way that you can measure outcomes using vision-based psychophysical assessments. This leads to two separate subjects that are coupled, I think. One is, what are the alternative sensory substitution techniques? And the second part of the question is, relative to the work you've done so far, is one better than the other? 
the other primary vision substitution device is the voice, which uses echolocation. And then there's another one called the Ox Deco, which is out of a group in Japan that's tactile band that you wear on the forehead. And, you know, you could argue that the white cane is a sensory substitution device. You know, there's, so it depends on your definition. It can get quite broad, and then you can bring in lots of other devices. But is one better than the other? I think that's a fair question, and I don't think we know the answer. I think just like medicines, you may have one cholesterol pill that works really great on one patient, but it's inappropriate for another one. And so, for example, if you have someone who is blind with poor hearing, the voice device is not going to be an option for them. But a person with intact hearing may like that, you know. And so some of this has to do with patient selection. And all of this is very preliminary. So what we actually hope to do is a controlled clinical trial with a crossover design that's going to start to get at that question. We have a grant out for that right now. Dr. Now. You described the number of devices and this vision substitution. Is it vision that's the key here, or is that not the correct interpretation? People call it vision, and you can debate what vision is. I think a more correct term would be enhanced perception of your environment. What I don't want people to misunderstand is that you see like a sighted person, because that's not the case. You can tell that there's something in front of you and can be fairly accurate. You know, you can stack blocks, you can pour a glass of water, you can find an empty chair, but that chair doesn't look like a chair that you or I would see with normal eyes. It's a shape that you're detecting. And I don't want people who may be blind, who might be listening to this, to think, I need to get my normal vision back, because it is not. It's the ability to perceive things in your environment through a different sensory channel. And if you have visual memories, you can elicit those memories and remember what that chair looked like and what the color looked like, and that's going to give you an enhanced qualia or experience, but it's definitely not vision. So I would presume, amongst other things, there's no depth perception in this feedback mechanism that you're describing. Depth perception is really important but it's not very good with any of the artificial vision technologies. The reason is there's only one camera on any of these things, and you really need to have binary input to get good senses of depth. But you can use things like motion parallax and by moving your head, and you can tell that something is getting larger as it moves towards you. But depth is one of the areas that we're actively trying to enhance with different types of cameras or two cameras, and we're looking into that now. So multiple cameras is like two eyes is what's needed for depth perception, but how do you translate that to these systems that aren't really given vision but are perception of the environment? We had one pilot that we did with an Xbox Connect. And we looked at simple objects, and we just had blindfolded, sighted patients. And they were able to say that something looked more like a cube than a square, for example. But again, you know, with limited resolution, that's also very, very difficult. Because if you had better resolution on the intraoral display, you would be able to see some of those subtle features, but you can't really detect that quite yet. So I think a few things have to happen. You know, the arrays have to become more dense, and that's going to be money and time to make that happen. And the camera technology has to be worked out so that you can actually transmit that information to an array. 
And that's the same for a retinal implant chip too, same technical problem. So Dr. Now, you had mentioned before that it takes some training and orientation to make these devices effective. Is that a substantial effort? Yes, it's a substantial effort. I liken this to learning how to play an instrument. So I can put a brain port on you, John, and within 10 or 15 minutes, you're going to be able to tell that there's a square there. You might be able to reach out and touch something. But to be good at it, you have to practice. And we have had to incorporate a rehabilitation program that spans the course of about a year. And that's like every two weeks to one month interacting with subjects on a telerehabilitation portal to give them increasingly more difficult things to do because it's frustrating. And it's encouraging to see patients who can do things when they come back that they could never do before, but they'll still say that it's very hard. And when you're blind, especially with acquired blindness, you just want to see again. You know, you want to get something that's immediate gratification, and you don't necessarily want to have to work to do it. And that's not across the board, but I would feel the same way. But you really, really do have to learn how to use this. And talking to Peter Meyer, who's the inventor of the voice, I think that might actually be a little bit more difficult to learn. He thinks that a highly motivated subject might get some basic skills in about three months. So that describes the level of effort and the duration to acquire some skills with this technology. But I presume you have to keep practicing, otherwise you at least regress somewhat in that regard. Right. Well, I think the idea is that if you keep practicing, you'll use it more and you might not throw it into a drawer, hopefully. With any product, it has to be useful or you're not going to use it. And so the challenge with these technologies is to allow them to do things that people can't do with anything else. With a white cane, for example, you can get around really well, but you might hit your head on something. And the advantage of a brain port would be that you wouldn't hit your head on something. And maybe if it was GPS enabled, it would actually provide some root information for you as well. And so you have to have a technology that's going to change the status quo and that's going to be useful for you to use and therefore you will be motivated to continue to use it and improve. The other question, of course, is availability of these devices. And I know that your focus is on improving the science and the clinical implementation of these kinds of technologies, but can people get these devices and be trained on them today? You can get the voice. The voice is software that you can actually download for free off the web, and you have to get some off-the-shelf components, and you can cobble things together, but you can get the voice now, and probably between $1,000 and $1,500, you can get all the components that you need. The brain port is not available for sale yet. That is pending CE mark, and we're doing an FDA safety study right now, finishing up this spring. So hopefully the brain port will be available in the next year or so. Um, there's no definite date for deployment, but it's near term. It's not 10 years. Uh, Dr. Now, thank you for joining us today and sharing your progress on these interesting technologies and the adaptation of them to the patient who needs these vision-assist devices. The work of Dr. Now and her other colleagues is available at the Fox Center website, www.foxcenter.pit.edu. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind you we welcome suggestions at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. 
Thank you for listening, and until we meet again, best wishes. <laughs>